welcome into the Daniel Wartman Show. It is yours truly coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is Thursday, October the 3rd. Welcome into the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out on the West Coast, and all time zones in between and around the world. Again, thanks for stopping in and watching the show live on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Really appreciate you uh, watching, supporting the show, the feedback. Everything has been incredible uh, since we launched earlier in this uh, 2019 year. And uh, coming up in just a few minutes, we are going to be joined by Chad McNichol. Uh, Look forward to having him on to talk about his uh, his coaching philosophy, his background and connection with the game, uh, and and uh, all things uh, in and around the idea of how to develop better players and and really create a true footballing culture, even right where you are with your own teams. So uh, look forward to. To chatting with him here in just a few minutes, but um, before we get to that, wow, oh wow, oh wow. So yesterday was a great day in the Champions League. My favorite team, Barcelona, is not playing well. They are they are not very good. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Um, Ernesto Valverde, from all accounts, seems like a really good guy. He's just not the right coach for FC Barcelona. He is certainly not a juego de posicion, uh, posicion uh, coach. He is not someone of the Pep Guardiola, uh, uh, Johan Cruyff um, mentality. And it is just getting worse and worse uh, with each season under him. And not only do I think he needs to go, but I think those in charge at the board level need to go as well. And uh, we need to get back to, to seeing a Barcelona that values and places a priority on its soul, on the essence of FC Barcelona and positional play and, and just beautiful football. It is not there. Uh, there's a, a bunch of parts a lot of them don't fit, but we bought names and doesn't necessarily make sense. And then we see the struggle. It's regular. One of the players who's been criticized as of recent, Luis Suarez, shows up yesterday and has two great goals. Both of them great goals for a come-from-behind at-home win at the Camp Nou in Barcelona, winning 2-1 over Inter Milan. The first goal, unbelievable volley. Messi gets the ball, right side of the box, lays it back to Vidal, who plays it across to the other side of the, the box. And Suarez on the volley. Beautiful shot. You cannot hit that shot any better. Then he hit it. It was pure, and it was pure beauty. It was amazing strike. It was it was an incredible, incredible strike. And then later in the match, still one one. Messi does what Messi does, and ends up weaving through and laying it off. Suarez takes a very very deft touch with laying himself up for his next touch to be a shot. So in two touches, he he plays himself into space and with his second touch puts it past the keeper to win two to one. Wow. It was an incredible uh, performance from Suarez. Um, I know that he's he's on he's in, he's in the back end of his career, especially at an elite level. I understand that, but the guy is just when he is on and when things are flowing. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think it's just the players. 
I really believe a lot of this has to do with with uh, training and the tactical uh, aspects of, of the of the team. Um, you know, there's a lot of players that I feel like are not performing anywhere near their potential, and I don't think it's I don't think it's just on the players. As a matter of fact, I don't think most of it is on the players. I think most of it is on scheme and tactics. But when when Suarez is on, unbelievable! It was great, and then. My second favorite team, who won the Champions League, Liverpool, has this crazy game yesterday at home against uh, an American-coached Red Bull Salzburg, Jesse Marsh, um, who led his team to Anfield. They go down 3-0, could have easily been more, but wasn't, and they kept fighting. They kept playing, they kept fighting. Their first goal to make it 3-1 was a really, really good moment. Uh, and they they chip away slowly. They get it back to 3-3. And then Liverpool is able to find the game winner later in the game to win 4-3. Almost looked like an epic collapse. And uh, yet another one of those magical Anfield nights. So you have Barcelona with a, with a comeback win with... Suarez, you know, two amazing goals. And then you see uh, Liverpool with this just crazy seven-goal thriller. Uh, each team going on a on a three-goal streak before Liverpool coming back to get their fourth and winning four, four to three. It was... Uh... It was some craziness uh, yesterday in the Champions League, and if you missed it, you should go uh, go look it up on YouTube. Find the highlights; um, it, it's it's worth watching. Um, one of the the goals for Liverpool was scored by Andy Robertson, their left back, who who I think is the second best left back in the world uh, behind Jordi Alba. But uh, in he had this incredible run of play, and it's a it's a run that. I've not really seen him make very much, and um, and and it's it's a run that uh, I wish he would make more, and it it led him to being at that moment basically in a number nine position from the left back spot, but it was a linkage of play and ends up getting played out to Trent Alexander Arnold, who brings the the cross on the ground across the. Uh, the goal in Robertson arriving at the right moment to put it past the keeper. That was a great goal. It was a great day yesterday in the Champions League, uh, for sure. Um, more angst surrounding Pulisic. Um, he is he was left out of the Chelsea squad for the uh, Champions League clash with Lille, um, and uh, Chelsea Chelsea won. Um, against uh, Lil, but uh, he was not a part of that match. Um, not on the bench, not in the starting lineup. Um, you know, he was named to the, the U.S. men's national team um, roster for the October Nations League matches against Cuba and Canada. Um, but... Um, it's not like we have a bunch of world beaters breathing down his neck. So no surprise there, but, um, and we'll get back to the U S men's national team in just a second, but the uh, man just, you know, left out again, a lot of angst, you know, on the, the social media uh, platforms about, you know, what's going on with Pulisic. Look, it's going to take time. Everybody needs to take a deep breath. He's got to buckle down. Uh, he was not a guaranteed starter at Dortmund. We talked about this on the show recently. It's going to take some time. He can get there. I'm not concerned, and I don't think anyone else should be concerned at this point. It's still early on, and uh, there's an adjustment period. Um, and in you know, and quite frankly, he's going to have to dig deep. Uh, to to get to that place where he's a proven starter and he's someone that his manager trusts, um, you know he's he's got the ability to do it. Um, now he's just got to go about and actually do it. Um, and then finally, the U.S. men's national team. So Klinsman, he 
he comes out and talk, talks about the CONCACAF Nations League is a waste of time and that the U.S. men's national team need to be playing tougher opponents and, you know, spending time playing Cuba, Canada, and other CONCACAF nations isn't really, um, you know, isn't really helpful. U.S. men's national team manager uh, Greg Berhalter said he agrees with former U.S. boss Jurgen Klinsmann about finding the most difficult friendly opponents possible, but contends that the CONCACAF Nations League still has value for his side. Look, part of the problem is like you can't play it both ways. You can't say it is, but then you're toting the company line, and th- and and this is really a problem for uh, you know where we are with the U.S. men's national team. There's way too many politics at play. There's way too much involvement from MLS. And, um, you know, you can say, I want tough opponents, but but you have to look at actions over words. And, um, And I think that's the key component here. It's something that we have to address if we are going to really, really, um, really get it right. So, um, I think that it's something that we've got to take into consideration and we've got to make it uh, really, really good and valuable for our players. And I think Klinsman's right. And I think Burhalter is, is he's got to do a better job in that department. Uh, I, I get it. It's tough to, to speak up against the Federation, but it is what it is. Um, our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand. Dot com And when you go there and, and place an order or shop and find a journal or a shirt or what have you, use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order at ductigbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. show thanks so much for tuning in today really appreciate chad mcnichol joining us today chad welcome to the show how are you not too bad thanks for having me on thanks for coming on um wanted to to ask you right off the from the start uh where did your love affair and and your in, enjoyment of the game of soccer begin how, how did that start where was that connection point for you that's a great question. Uh, I almost have not a great explanation. I grew up in the Chicago area. I was the only kid on my block. I'm, I just hit 44, so we're talking early 80s, very late 70s when youth soccer was getting started. I was the only kid on my block who played soccer, and my parents weren't in soccer, so I always loved it. I would have dreams about soccer, so I, I don't really know where that inherent natural love of the game came but I, I think that combined well because I've always been interested in other cultures, other languages. So as I traveled around Latin America mostly, um, that was a nice compliment to see how they saw the game and, and, 
and uh, how it was just a part of their lives and a part of their identity and uh, the language, which we'll talk about a little bit later and, and what that means and how that helps me understand the game too. But uh, where that all came from, I, I don't, I don't have a great explanation for you. It was just kind of inherent. So in, in, Regards to your upbringing and, and growing up in the Chicago area, you said your your parents weren't really into soccer and none of the, the kids in your neighborhood were really into soccer. How did you find the sport at all? Like, was there, you know, a flyer at the school? Was there a league in the area and you just said, hey, I want to try this? Like, where, where, where did you actually find a, a connection point? I think I think it was just my dad taking me to the local rec leagues. Those were the days when you would play indoor soccer in school gyms, right? And you'd bounce it off the wall during the winters and those terrible, terrible winters that I'm glad to be away from. Um, yeah, and, and some outdoor, right? This is these are the days when we were playing eleven v eleven, right? When you were five or six years old on, a, on an oversized field. So it was really just those those rec leagues, and then I was I remember kicking a balloon around the kitchen. So. Uh, I mean, pretty much as organic as you can think of it, right? Probably the way most everybody gets into the game here in the states, at least, because you're not you're not watching it on TV, right? There's no, uh, especially in the Midwest, it was probably a little harder to come by than the East Coast in those days, and um, yeah, there there wasn't any external influence I had to get me involved. So you you find the game, you start playing the game. As you got older, how did you how did you stay connected to the game? Did you keep playing through high school? I mean, like, was this, you know, something that that just kind of really, you know, connected with you in a deep way, or or was it, you know, something else? I probably became that typical statistic for a while. Got frustrated because a lot of kids they get sick of the pressure. They get sick of realizing that they're not developing. And, um, so I, I quit for a while and I got back into it at the end of high school. So junior, senior year, got back into it and, um, then went to college at university of Arizona, basically playing there in a beer league. So then it again became right. A lot of fun. Um, and you're out there with a bunch of guys and, and we're all pretty terrible, but it, it doesn't matter. Right. You, you sweat and bleed with those guys on the field. So yeah, as a, as a youth, I guess through, uh, you might say, middle school and early high school, I wasn't, I wasn't in the game at all. And then I picked it up again into early adulthood um, and went from there. And then, of course, like a lot of us get into it, had kids, and that got me into coaching and really been coaching since 2005. And I've learned a heck of a lot more about the game coaching than I ever did playing, unfortunately, but just the way it is probably for many of us. So you get into coaching when you first put on that coaching hat, what was, you know, your thought process Were were, were you thinking, Hey, I'm going to become the next uh, Pep Guardiola of youth soccer coaches. Did you even know who Pep was? Like what, what, when you first put it on for the first time, where, were were you completely green or did you feel like, Hey, I'm going to be like the best prepared youth soccer coach of all time. Completely green. And, um, Probably my goal at that point was just to not be that psycho parent um, discouraging his kids, right? So probably tended to be more on the organic lack side than uh, the control freak guy setting up, you know, 300 cones for a U6 practice. But um, you see a lot of bad examples of unstable adults, parents, coaches. I think that was my main goal at the beginning, trying to avoid that. But then, um, yeah, I, right back, back then I didn't have much of an idea. I wasn't watching too much of the, of the European game and I didn't know very much about who the big coaching figures was. So that, that didn't inform me yet, but I, I did have those experiences when I would travel abroad that kind of inform me, right. And it would, you'd start to ask questions. Well, this doesn't look right. Right. This game is not supposed to be a contest of, uh, goal kicks and high pressing right and and just kicking the ball and screaming and running and bashing right that 
people around the world experience the game on a different level. And that was probably, probably a starting point for me, right? Those, those real life experiences I had with real people in other countries and a little bit of my childhood, but that was just kind of connecting to the love of the game. And I'm putting that all together saying, realizing that, you know, the, the game that we experience here in your typical, you know, middle-class Saturday field doesn't look, doesn't feel the way it should. And why is that? And pretty much everything I've done since then is to try to, to get more to what, I guess, soccer, what it represents to, to people around the world where it actually means something more important to them than just wins, losses, and uh, hustle. Would you say the game for you is is influenced by you know a Latino uh, mentality or philosophy or or is it a European kind of a mix of of some uh, like Spanish versus uh, maybe Italian or English like what, what kind of when when you want to watch a game what what is the most appealing game for you to watch. Um, in terms of, you know, if you're just going to sit down as a, as a viewer and watch a game, what kind of style of match are you looking to see? So I, I prefer La Liga. Um, I am full disclosure. I am, I am a big Guardiola guy. Uh, it doesn't have to be La Liga, but part of that is just my interest in Spanish language. Um, you know, I think, I think my preference of course is, is the, you might say the the beautiful circulation style, but it doesn't have to be that. Moreover, it really just has to be. Um, well, I, I do watch some English league, right? But I, I guess I would say my preference isn't necessarily for. I, I'd I'd rather watch a bottom table La Liga game, for example, than I would a bottom table EPL match, right? But of course, obviously, the the top EPL teams, some of the best teams in the world. Um. Serie A also, I, I, I like watching that. I don't get as much of it on TV. First preference is La Liga and BN Sports. I got really mad at DirecTV when they killed that. That was a big problem for me. So I've been scrambling since then to, um, to make sure I get the La Liga channels. Fubo, baby. That's uh, that's my unpaid plug for Fubo. That, that's how I that's how I get uh, most of my soccer channels in, and then a little ESPN Plus to fill out the uh, the package, and uh, and I can get pretty much any game I want to watch at that point uh, between the two. Um, but I am with you. La Liga for me is my favorite league in, in the world. Barcelona is my favorite club. Um, and I share your sentiments in terms of, uh, I would much rather watch, uh, top mid or bottom of the table La Liga match over most matches anywhere, quite frankly, much less the premier league. Now I do like Liverpool in, in England, uh, in the premier league and, um, you know, root for them and, and obviously watch their matches. But, uh, you know, if you're going to ask me to turn on, you know, a, a bottom of the table premier league match, uh, right. versus uh, La Liga, it's, it's not even uh, a question. I, I want to watch, uh, a La Liga match. I, I feel like there's just something in the culture of Spanish soccer, Spanish football that, um, even though not all the styles are the same, you know, Atletico Madrid uh, approaches a match much differently than a, a you know, a Pep coached team. Um, there are differences there, but there's just, to me, there's so many layers of complexity regardless of what the style is. And it seems to me that the, the Spanish culture appreciates the nuance and the depth of the of the football education with their players uh that they really get into the details um i would equate it if you're looking at it from an american perspective now you know i live right in the heart of sec country right on the gulf of mexico um you know i i was um uh, talking with someone the other day about the fact that you know the high school that i graduated from put you know, six players in the NFL at the same time. Um, the it's different down here when it comes to American football. Um, you can go to a local, you know, park and those coaches are, are, 
preparing kids um, and teaching kids the depth, the details that these guys go through. And they're volunteers. You know, these rec coaches are volunteers. They're not, you know, um, paid coaches. They're not getting paid anything. These kids are paying, you know, paying uh, 75 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever it is to, to play rec American football. And, and yet they keep finding their way through the pipeline and they, they make it to universities like in Alabama or LSU or Auburn or, um, you know, colleges like that and and finding their way to the NFL and I think that level of culture is what exists in La Liga in terms of that really um, deep level of knowledge regardless of you know whether it's an athletic you know Bilbao whether it's an Atletico Madrid or it's a Barcelona um, they all have their own styles and ways that they want to go about uh, playing, you know, uh, their style or their type of football. But there seems to be like this depth to um, the footballing experience and the players and the coaches that goes beyond just, hey, throwing some cones on the ground and saying, we're going to play 4-3-3. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, as soon as the ball's kicked off, um, your team very, very rarely actually looks like it's in a 4-3-3. It's always shifting. So what are the responsibilities and what are those layers of instructions that goes into that? And that's one of the things I appreciate about La Liga. And I I feel like um, up and down the the table, but even in in the pyramid, you see that where teams – you know, have an identity and, and they, and they stay true to that, but there, there's a depth to that identity. Where did your connection with the Spanish language and, um, you know, and, and the, the culture of Spanish football, where did that connection for you uh, begin? Well, you, you just, uh, so many things you said there really hit on some stuff that I talk about all the time. So yeah, I, I really share your sentiments, but I don't want to, discount uh you know i'll just say a little sidebar you know growing up it used to be that old stereotype of the uk guys were those shysters they would show up and because they had an accent they could make some money but they didn't know very much right and people would just kind of they were the snake oil salesmen right and for years they profited off of just kind of teaching garbage really right i think i think they're now a lot of progressive brits you might call them They're, they're doing a better job and I, th- I think some of that you described about the Spanish game for sure applies uh, to a lot of English cases. I don't want to discount them, but yeah, I very much agree with what you described about Spain. I love the country. I love the language. How that, how that came to me um, it was an odd combination. I, I'm probably more linguistically gifted than I am mathematically or numbers gifted, even though I became an engineer. Explain to me how that works. I don't know. Um, when I was growing up, uh, my parents, uh, we, we would take, growing up in Chicago to get away from the winters, we would go to uh, Cancun, Mexico every year around Christmas time for two weeks. It was pretty, pretty terrible life, right? So I've probably been there about 15 times, but growing up, it was formative for me to right, want to speak the language, want to interact with people. And then uh, just, right, you just natively, if you have a native interest, you pursue it and you get better at it. And so I spent time with a lot of people. Um, I connected with uh, a family where we, we adopted a guy. He kind of became basically almost my adopted brother at the end of high school. And that's actually when I got back into soccer, playing at school. We played together and then we went to the university together. He was from Venezuela and his parents are actually from Spain. And so that was then the connection back to Spain and Spanish football. Uh, of course, his dad was a big Real Madrid fan. But um, then, you know, 2008 rolled around, and that's when you know, Pep Guardiola started to get big. And I had been coaching for a couple years. And I think I've mentioned previously before how I was always looking for that connection. How do we bring this American soccer experience back to what the game should look like? Very much, very much what you were describing. I think your example about football and the SEC culture is probably the best avenue for Americans to understand that, right? We we have an idea of what it should look like and what it represents to real people. And so how do we, how do we get some of that experience back and infuse that into the environment that we're in? And um, that's what I've tried to do. And so the connection to Spain was probably through that family and then um, started coaching, pay a lot of attention to Spanish football. Um, 
Spanish language, of course, drove that. So when I watch BN, I like to watch the games telecast in Spanish. But I've noticed that um, this is what I was thinking about, about the language. I, I think you maybe you said something about the, the how it's a language of soccer, probably something similar for football. But uh, you're probably familiar with the Escola program, right? In, in Barcelona, they, they have the, the academy, of course, and they have the Escola, which is kind of like the right the way that they export their brand but uh think of it as a rec program on steroids but i wouldn't really call them comparable to any rec team here right in uh, 2016 i went to an escola camp i got hooked up through uh ken sueda who's on twitter a lot zone 14 he did me the favor got me in and i was a uh, coaching at this summer camp and uh, i thought it was great because i got to interact with the spanish coaches coming over from the academy or they're somehow affiliated not necessarily with the academy itself but affiliated with the club in some capacity i got to talk to them and that's really where i got even deeper into the specific language and uh what really hit me about just looking at their topics it wasn't so much just the so-called drills that we always we use that term wasn't what they did it was getting an understanding of okay we worked for five days these are the topics that we hit and they paid such attention to things like what they right. We would translate. I use the term dismarking. Right? It bothers some people because it's right not a word we use in English. But we spent a day on that topic, right? And this is where language matters because, and like if you want to understand um, an alien culture, right? If they came over, you would expect them to have a more sophisticated language, right? To the way that they express concepts for. Uh, you know, time and distance, it, it would be different, right? If they were going to be more sophisticated, that's a big theme in movies. I kind of felt like discovering the Spanish language was almost like discovering, right? Almost an alien way of thinking about the game because it was, it was more fundamental. They do a better job at capturing the fundamental ideas of the game just with the language. I mean, the, the idea of just marking and then under that, there's a whole encyclopedia of different ways to accomplish that and for what purpose and when and why right whereas an american coach might just think you know yeah okay check two right and, and that's it right the kid never gets any nuance of what does that really mean why why am i doing that and so that's um guess that that's really what what interests me now about the spanish game is the connection to the language and that gets back to the identity of the game, what you were describing about developing college players for football. When Probably when you listen to those coaches, right, it, it's, a, it's an identity, it's a language. They use certain terms to get a kid to understand that means something to the players, to communicate something very specific to them that's going to carry through. I'm sure their thinking is probably very long-term. If I'm coaching a seven-year-old, I'm going to teach them concepts they're going to build because I have a vision or forward idea of what it should look like when they're 17 or 18. That's what I think is missing from American soccer. And that's what I think the rest of the world does better than us because they have a long-term view. And of course we know why that is. I think we would probably agree, right? The whole promotion relegation system connects all that does a better job. Um, that's just an avenue to, to turn the game from an individual pursuit into a collective identity but that's really what we're talking about here is a how to how to make the game a collective identity of a social class of people, right? In your example, it was American football. That's what the Spaniards do. That's what we're trying to replicate here, right? And we're fighting against a system that discourages that and kind of uh, makes it as hard as possible, keeps everything siloed and segregated, not just in terms of administrative functions, but in terms of knowledge and uh, connecting ideas. So just kind of openly talking uh, at a very high level in the abstract, but that's, those are my objectives of what I'm trying to do when I'm coaching. When, when you are uh, coaching, I, look, one of the things that I, I, I thought that was great that you just brought up is, is talking about like specific uh, concepts uh, within, say, a drill or a session. So you may have a principle, overriding principle that you're trying to, you know, to teach to your players. Um, one of the things I notice uh, a lot is, um, you know, 
you'll hear the word Rondo, right? And um, I'm a big fan of Rondos. And if you're a fan of Spanish soccer, um, you know, I, it's, it's kind of just part of what you do and part of how you do what you do. And yet at the same time, um, I hear that word thrown around and I go and I'll watch training sessions and I'll, and I'll hear them say, well, you know, we do rondos and I'll go watch. And I'm like, that was, I mean, technically maybe you, you satisfied the definition of a rondo, but, but where is the, the depth where is the the specific teaching points or the coaching points, the nuances? Um, for example, you know you're running a simple you know four v one rondo. So for for the audience, that would basically uh, be set up with, you know, four cones and you've got, uh, let's say a player, uh, moving back and forth between each of the set of four cones. And then you've got one person in the middle. That's the defender trying to, 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 to win the ball back. Now in that drill, there's different ways you can run it. There's different ways you can, you know, have different principles of focus when, when you're running that particular four V one Rondo. But, um, you know, recently I, I was helping out uh, with my son's team and I was running this Rondo session and I noticed just how many of these kids didn't have the basics of receiving the ball across their body and one and two touch and being able to move and position their bodies to support the ball in between the cones and, and, you know, be available as a passing option by moving into space to, to, to make the angles for uh, their team on the outside to have more options and make it harder for the the opponent now that simple rondo could be you know run with a, a certain level of of definition and principles and, and and focus and then others you know i'll, I'll watch with that rondo and it, it would just be like you know let's play keep away and there's no there's no consideration given to what foot the the, the players are receiving the ball with. Uh, there's no consideration to you know moving back and forth to support the play. So you can say you run rondos, but are you really running rondos um, to in the way that they really could and should function? There's so many, and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with. La Liga in Spanish soccer, for me, there's just so many depths and layers. You can run that same Rondo session a million different ways with a dip, million different focuses, and each of those can improve your players. And if you just go, hey, there's the ball, now go play, keep away, I really feel like you're doing a disservice to your players, but I also feel like as a country, we don't even really get what we're trying to do on a macro level, as you were kind of alluding to, um, you know, to me, I, I am, you know, a big fan and I cannot wait. I, I, I'm hoping it comes sooner rather than later when Xavi comes back to Barcelona to manage. I, I believe it's happening and I believe it's going to happen at some point in the near future. How near? I'm not sure, but I love to just sit and listen to him talk about, the game and in his his talk usually includes some form of this expression that football is about exploiting time and space and if you can understand that as a coach it it can just open up you know your mind to to really be begin to educate your players to understand what that means in different situations with the ball, without the ball, when you specifically have the ball versus when you don't have the ball versus when your team either is or is not in possession. So when you look at the game and, and, and then you try to then break that down into, you know, bite size education uh, for a training session, let's say with your teams, what are some of the principles of play that you look at that are guiding your, you know, on a micro level, your teams, your coaching? Yeah, again, 100, 110% to everything you just said. Um, so, uh, and, and the 4v1 you described, and the 3v1, there's still core activities for what I do with my current U15s, and I'm trying to get my uh, U8 kids starting those same ideas, but 
as far as core principles, so this this goes back to where I think we really get it wrong in the U.S. Um, so much of what we do is, it, you know, it's in vogue nowadays. Everybody says we have every club has a curriculum, and I think they did that because that's what schools do, and it sounds good. It sounds good to parents. It sounds good that we have these things that we do. But as you know, one major problem with coaches is content overload. And when you have an established set of principles that you're driving and you're repeating in everything you do, you don't need, you know, a thousand and one soccer drills. You see all these blast emails that comes in. You maybe need a a few small set of core activities. And even those core activities, though, are only as good as having a deep knowledge of the things you're trying to bring out of them. And that's the problem I have with a lot of the curriculum that all these clubs are throwing around is, there's just always a new set of activities and there's not really very much discussion about what are we trying to bring out? What are the key objectives? So a big thing for me as it has to be in in any team where you're worried about awareness is, is body positioning, right? So you can bring that out in the four of you one Rondo that you described when I'm receiving part of the idea of receiving on the far leg that you describe, of course, is to have the appropriate body positioning, but I can still receive on the far leg and not be, ideally positioned at an angle to where I can really kind of receive on the half turn and play across the grid or just kind of disguise my intentions, right? If, if I'm facing too much to where the ball came from and that will in turn maybe cause the defenders to read that and press the guy and I lose possession all because the way I had my body shaped. So that's a big one. Um, Perception, right? There's so much talk about in U S soccer and coaching circles about making decisions, but decisions are only as good as what you perceive. Right? You can't make a good decision if you don't perceive anything. And this, again, this is an example of how the concepts that you're reinforcing need to reinforce one another and relate to one another. They can't be isolated. That's why you have to have good body positioning, to have awareness, so then you can make decisions. So it all, all these things relate. And you can instill these things at the youngest ages just by telling kids to look and asking them what they see. Did you see this option? Did you see that option? Through questions and just reminding them always to look and perceive first and then decide based on what they see. A lot of times what you're going to find is what a coach might describe as a so-called technical breakdown or so-called bad decision. These things are most of the time failures to perceive. They didn't actually see the situation. Yeah, it's, it's made worse by the fact that they don't have maybe as good of a technical foundation. But let's not get mixed up and say that you have to, because this is the other part, not understanding what tactics are. We can't say that, and I, I, this would really bother me, when I was, when I was serving in the coaching uh, volunteer capacity, helping people, well, sort of at a volunteer organization, helping coaches get connected to knowledge, I would schedule these things that were used to be called youth modules. I don't even know if they do them anymore, but they were for recreational coaches. It was like a four-hour course. They had some classroom time. They had some field time. And they did some good things, right? Like banning the three L's, no laps, lines, lectures, trying to get away from some of the worst things that we do on a Saturday on a field. I get that. But there's this, been, there's this persistent mantra that, that sticks with us where people will say, no tactics until U13. No tactics until U14. I think that was an outgrowth of the people who were so hyper-focused on what they thought was the idea of teaching positions in air quotes, which means I screw kids into the ground in this spot and don't leave your spot so that it looks organized and I feel better about the game. But to say that tactics aren't part of the game at any age is just wrong, right? Tactics are decisions, and decisions are driven by perception um, of a player. So I can teach that at U6. I can teach that at U5. I can ask players why they're doing something. Right? If I'm in a 1v1 situation, I can ask a player how he can freeze that defender better. Should he stop the ball or should he drive at the defender? Those are tactical things. What I think the other countries get and what probably your, your football coaches in the SEC regions get, they know how to tie all that together in a common lesson. They don't just teach isolated technical skills. Here's how, you, here's how you do your feet. Here's how you block. Here's how you throw a football. They know how to tie all that together in a way that makes sense to 
help a player play a certain way, help a player play with a given awareness. So uh, body positioning, receiving on the far leg, looking high first, looking high up the field first to see if I can make a first pass to break pressure, Um, looking for diagonal balls to break pressure. Um, Every time I drop a pass, I should probably maybe follow that with a switch. Um, Just bigger ideas of the game. Those, those are all tactical considerations. And, and as you said earlier in this conversation, maybe one of the biggest pet peeves of mine in the world is coaches who conflate the idea of systems of play with tactics. And uh, just, well, you know, I had to switch to a, a three, five, two, because the four, three, three wasn't working. Well, was the four, three, three not working or were you just trying to have four guys stand in the back, three guys stand in the midfield and three attackers up front and thought that was actually soccer. So there needs to be a deeper understanding of all these things, how the principles tie together. I can't let you get away from this. We can't go anywhere else for a minute. <laughs> oh man, you have just um, you have just hit a nerve with me in a good way. F- from from my standpoint, I am complete completely in agreement with you um i'm gonna echo you as you've echoed me on 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 the on the show um 110 but i cannot let you get away from a couple things and i want to i want to pick your brain on them i also want you to expound on them a little bit more because i do think these are key key i cannot stress key pieces to coaching and I see this so often missing the mark. And a, a, a couple of things that stood out to me first is the very last thing you were just talking about. And we're going to get into a couple other ones that I, I took some note of. But the, the, the piece of formations being tactics. Um, a 4-3-3 isn't working. Therefore, I'm going to go to a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1 or a 3-5-2 and somehow just by you know supposedly rearranging the deck chairs without much other explanation that that is enough can you go more in depth about what you're talking about in terms of formations versus tactics in that you know specifically with that that comment that you made yeah um I've been at coaches meetings where uh, these things are debated for an hour and a half and I get so mad because they completely missed the point. Um, The modern game, and that's, that's important to stress, right? Maybe it looked a little bit differently when we were playing back in the seventies. And that's where people who have an older understanding of the game will say, you know, I, I played the game for 20 years. They may not understand this more idea, but positions, we're so-called systems of play. When we say systems of play, we're talking about this idea. Is it a 4-4-2? Is it a 3-5-2? These things are generalities, right? They're a framework. I think maybe a more comprehensive way to look at the game is what's now called positional play, uh, juego de posición, JDP. Um, if you look that up, all that really is basically trying to do is saying, hey, at all moments, I need to have sufficient width, sufficient depth i need to have people occupying all different lines on the field and that helps me enable diagonal passes um i need to have people basically in between lines so it's 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 showing very good generalities of of across the field what a what the team shape should look like and then from there right you always start with your shape but then from there you have mobility is a key thing how does that shape flex and how that shape flexes very much depends on what part of the field the ball is in and do I have the ball or not, right? So obviously my team shape should be very different if I'm attacking versus if I'm defending. Obviously my team shape in attack should be very different if I'm building out in my defending third, if I'm maybe somewhere in the middle third, or now I'm trying to take the gloves off, I'm trying to penetrate in that final third and finish. All those things are going to be very different. So what was maybe a 4-3-3, if I'm in the opponent's third, um, a, a right attacking third, it uh, it might be, you know, something vastly different. I might have five guys up at the top, right? I might have my three attackers, my two wings pinched inside, my striker still, but I might have my outside backs all the way up. And so it, it those are things that a coach, and that's the actual nuts and bolts of coaching, 
it's for the different moments in the game, the different pictures that the game gives you, explaining to your players where you want them, what role you want them to do. And so there's another debate about stifling creativity, so to speak. And this is another one that, that really bothers me. We, we misunderstand what creativity is in so many different ways. Uh, but the, the idea of a system isn't to lock people into a spot on the ground. And that's that misunderstanding. That's why it goes off onto that creativity, so-called creativity tangent, because our conception of a position is that this is just your area of the field. The idea of a system is it's really supposed to bring out the best qualities of a player, right? If you have speed, for example, let's, let's use those outside backs. Let's say you have good defending qualities, but you can read the game well, you have good speed to move up and down the flanks, and you can put crosses in. Well, then you'd probably be a good overlapper, right, coming up and down the flanks. So for those qualities, I'm going to put you in a role where I think you can succeed. And so that role, though, really means that you're an outside back, you're my left back, when the ball's up by their goal, I really need you to be fully up there in their attacking third, overlapping, putting crosses in. That's just an, just a quick, easy example of how today's example of fluid and flexing positions based on the game situation are very different from what maybe we thought we understood when we were growing up playing in the late 70s and the 80s. And the European game has been there for, well, for a very long time, right? Obviously, Cruyff can talk about that and the ethos he put in the academy in the 70s, we're just still trying to catch up to what that should look like. But at a high level, that's the difference between uh, systems and roles. The systems are not tactics, and how tactics can be really trained. You can work on these things with U5 or U6 players by getting them to do different roles, even in a 4v4 game, because I also coach 4v4, I coach 2012s. I love it. I don't have to deprogram any bad habits. Right, and the kid, then they say to me, Coach, if you play the simple diamond, am I on defense? And I say to them, well, that doesn't make any sense. When we don't have the ball, who defends? And they look at me and I say, everybody, right? Everybody defends when we don't have the ball. And when we win the ball, who's attacking? Everybody attacks. So it's that, that's just a simple example of what you can do with very, very, very young kids to break these odd language right these poor terms that we use that give us the wrong conception of the game right i'm on defense that means i just stand back here like a silhouette like a kid in a foosball table and i just whack the ball when it comes to me no when when we're attacking everybody attacks right if you're an outside player in my diamonds you're attacking all the way you push all the way up because this game is about scoring goals when you're a 2012 right and doesn't it kill you you've seen those little those little kid games where they're playing and they, they put the kid in front of the goal yeah, it's it's brutal. <laughs> it, and, well, I mean, or or they play, or they play, or they play four v four, but they play this, this pair are my center backs. This pair are my strikers. You're defenders. You're the two forwards. And so called teaching positions, right? If we do it that way, and you know, par- parents get upset because when they put a kid in the goal, you know, they our team can't score, and I say, well understand the abuse going on is the abuse of the poor kid who's not experiencing the game. He stands there the whole game as, you know, like a, a kid to get peppered, right? As he stands in the goal, poor kid, there's no way he's going to keep on playing. This game isn't fun for him, right? You're not even teaching him the fundamental ideas of the game, but many coaches think I'm teaching defending. You're not teaching defending. Proper defending is not to stand way back on the other side of the field and wait for the game to come to you, right? If you watch the game on TV, that's not what defenders do. So this is connecting the very basic ideas that you can program concepts of the game for the adult game when they're little kids. You just do it in an age-appropriate way and do it in a way that that uh, gets them perceiving and asking questions and understanding what these things mean, what these pictures are. So um, another thing that kind of uh, I was thinking about when you mentioned no, no tactics until U13 is uh, a phrase that also gets kind of thrown in when you're having that conversation is the game is the greatest teacher. But when I, when I watch uh, training sessions where that philosophy is espoused, the game is the greatest teacher. I, I, I usually watch a training session that doesn't teach players the game. Um, 
where 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 kids come out of the game not knowing what to do they don't realize that even at 14 15 16 years old when you only stare down at the ground and dribble until you lose the ball is not a good idea um what what do you how do you combat that when you have conversations with other coaches? How do you combat that that part of um, what is kind of spread through American soccer? This whole no tactics until you thirteen that the, the game is the greatest teacher nonsense. Yeah, well, it's a good question. How to combat it? Um, this is why language. I always go back to this. Language is so powerful, right? If I'm talking about and the original example I used for language was dismarking right if i'm if i'm mentioning things that sound different and they're capturing bigger ideas it's usually a clue that maybe we're missing something so the game is the best teacher is usually just um, something that people throw out there because in my experience at least when they say that what they mean is hands off no coaching and i'm just going to let the kids play and so-called let them make decisions and we talked about that a little bit how Every decision is not necessarily a good decision because if they're not perceiving, they're going to continue to make bad decisions, right? And your job as a coach is to then educate them and step in. And if they're not perceiving, by the way, I would say that maybe that's one point. If they're not perceiving the game, the game is not teaching them very much, right? So your job as a coach, the job of any coach is to accelerate the learning process, right? Not just, I guess maybe if you could say, sure, if I if the kids had 10,000 years to play, maybe they would eventually figure it out. I mean, I don't know, maybe I also doubt that because that kind of implies if you put the monkey in front of a keyboard, he's going to eventually bang out Mozart. That's not, things don't always just organically happen, but even if they could happen with some amount of time, very long time, your job as a coach is to accelerate the process. So when we say the game is the best teacher, my concern is that what you really mean is, I'm not going to coach. I'm going to be hands off and I'm just going to let things happen. But you still need to kind of jump in and ask that player, what did you see? Did you see this? Did you see that? But you didn't. Okay. Well, why can't you? Um, Could you maybe hold your body this way? And that's also a balance of what I might call direct and indirect instruction. Um, There's a lot of focus now also in coaching circles about guided, so-called guided discovery. And that could be bad because if you're not guiding to anything, It's not really very much guided discovery. Um, It's what I would call indirect teaching. Sometimes it is good to throw questions out there um, just to make sure you're checking for understanding. If that's what we mean by guided discovery, checking for understanding, it can be effective. But if guided discovery just means I'm just going to keep asking a bunch of questions and whatever kid, whatever answer the kid throws out, well, that's good. Um, Then that's not so good. You need a balance of maybe some direct instruction Right. Just tell the kid maybe at the end of it, here's here's what, what I think would work better. But you also need to kind of guide him a little bit towards perception of the game to make better decisions. So that's where I think the game is the best teacher mantra breaks down because uh, we don't – kids aren't making good decisions, and so they really aren't learning very much from the game. The coach's job is to accelerate that process. That's what I think is, is missed when we say the game is the best teacher. Absolutely. You know, one of the things uh, about learning, if you if you look at different ways of learning, and I believe Pavlov uh, talked about this in, in, in some of his research, but but experience is the most painful, takes the, the longest time to learn um, when you're trying to learn something, uh, personal experience. Um and there's there's so many times where I feel like if if coaches or teachers of the game were, you know, a little bit more uh, purposeful in their instruction, paying more attention, um, you know, rather than running an entire training session where they just go out and, and play and you're only going to see them twice a week, um, you know, be be mindful, purposeful about well, what are you trying to get out of the? If if they are going to play, what are, what are you going to try to get out of those uh, matches? Are do you have a specific, you know, teaching point that you're working through? And and you know, like you said, the the questions are you know that that you can ask, be deliberate, uh, not just blase fair and and let them go. And I, I think what it really boils down to is is you know to to come back to a point 
point you, you said earlier. When you look at this on a macro level, that's to me where a lot of these things get fixed. Um, because right now we, we have a system here in America where everything is top down what you're allowed to do, what the focus is, whether it's a coaching license course, whether it's access to being a referee or a club or whatever, everything is top down. Rather than saying, hey, you in your organization, you be a laboratory for football excellence and you figure out what 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 works for you and and, and let those things kind of rise and fall on merit. That's why for me, it's, it's so critical because it affects everything. Um, you know, if, if a club in, in, you know, Arizona is able to build an identity and rise through the ranks, it can have a, the similar type of educational impact uh, that a Barcelona has had uh, around the world with their philosophy and their Escolas and everything else that you mentioned earlier. So I really feel like we're doing our, ourselves a disservice um, with that as a country on a macro level, but on a micro level, the things that you were hitting on, uh, I think were, were fantastic. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with us. How can people connect with you, follow you on social media and uh, pick your brain even more yeah i mean i i love twitter twitter's been huge for me i'm, I'm on twitter at uh the balon foot b-a-l-o-n foot which is kind of my uh you know portmanteau of, of two words from you know balon pie that's the way the spanish refer to the game so balon foot um look me up there and i i have some of the, my best interactions there on soccer twitter well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Chad, uh, and appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back on again and uh, get into more of this uh, conversation next time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Daniel. I really appreciated it. It was great. Thank you. That is Chad McNichol. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show today. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to Chad McNichol for joining us. Really appreciate his time sharing his insights about what is going on in his neck of the woods and, and how he views training and talking the game, the culture of the game, etc. So I really appreciate him spending some time with us. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.